God's regard for his own glory seen in the saving of sinners by Stephen Sharnock, 1628-1680. This is coming from the Digital Puritan Quarterly, Volume 4, Issue Number 2. God's passion for his own glory is evident in all areas of the created order, and sometimes it is most obvious in places where it seems least likely to glorify God. For example, as this essay illustrates, the darkness of sin provides a sharp contrast for the brilliant splendor of his grace in rescuing helpless sinners. How would his glorious attributes of patience, forgiveness, mercy, justice, and wisdom be shown were it not for the problem of sin? C.F. Romans chapter 5, verses 20-21. Quote, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Close quote. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The glory of his patience. We wonder, when we see a notorious sinner, how God can let his thunder lie still beside him, and his sword rusting in its sheath. And indeed, when such are converted... They themselves wonder at the fact that all this, while God did not draw out his sword and pierce their bowels, or shoot one of his arrows into their hearts. But by such forbearance, God shows himself to be God indeed, and in this, infinitely above such a weak creature as man. Quote, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. Close quote. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 9. When God had reckoned up their sins, and they might have expected the sentence after the reading of the charges, instead... God tells them that he will not destroy them, that he will not execute them, because he is God. If he were not God, he could not keep himself from pouring out a just vengeance upon them. If a man inherited all the meekness of all the angels and all the men that were ever in the world, he would not be able to bear with patience the insults and injuries done to him during the space of a single day. For no one but God, one who is infinitely long-suffering, for none but God can bear with them. Not a sin passed in the world before the coming of Christ in the flesh that was not a commendatory letter of God's forbearance, quote, to declare 
his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Close quote. Romans chapter 3 verse 25. And not a sin passed before the coming of Christ into the soul that does not give the same testimony and bear the same record. And the greater the number of sins and the greatness of the sins that are passed over, the more trophies there are that are erected to God's long-suffering. The reason why the grace of the gospel appeared so late in the world was to testify to God's patience. Our apostle takes notice of this long-suffering toward himself in bearing with such a persecutor. Quote, How be it, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him. Close quote. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. And this was Christ's purpose in letting him run so far. Well, that he might show forth, not just a few mites, grains, or ounces of his patience, but rather all long-suffering. Long-suffering without measure or weight by wholesale. And this is a pattern for all the ages of the world. The text has in it an example or a pattern. Now we know that a type is but a shadow in respect of the substance. Thus, all ages of the world could not waste the patience which he had manifested as only a pattern. And we know that a pattern is less than the whole piece of cloth from which it is cut and as an essay is but a short taste of a man's skill in writing, and does not reveal all his art. Well, the first miracle Christ wrought, which was turning the water into wine, served as an example of the power that he had, and was less than those miracles which followed it. And the first miracle God wrought in Egypt, that is, turning Aaron's rod into a serpent, was only a sample of his power to produce the greater wonders that were to come. And so also, this patience to Paul was but a little essay of his meekness, a little patience cut off from the whole piece, which would always be dealing out the same to other sinners and would never be completely consumed until the end of the world. This sample, or pattern, merely the extent of a few years, because Paul was young. The scripture calls him a young man, Acts chapter 7, verse 58, roughly about 36 years of age. Yet he calls it all long-suffering. Oh, Paul. <laughs> some have since experienced more of this patience, and some of it, has reached not only to 30, but 40, 50, or even 60 years. The glory of his grace. No, it's partly for the admiration of this grace that God intends the last day of judgment. 
It is a strange place. Quote, When he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. Close quote. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10. What? Does Christ not have glory enough with his Father in heaven? Must he also come to seek glory from such worthless creatures as his saints? What is in them that glorifies Christ? It is the gracious work he has wrought in them. For the text is to be glorified in his saints. In other words, by something within them that they glorify Christ both actively and objectively for. As the creatures glorify the wisdom and power of God by providing matter for men to do so, so also the work of God in the saints provides matter for praise to the angels and admiration to the devils. Well, the apostle uses two words, glorified, and that is the work of angels and saints who shall sing out his praises for it, even as a prince receives the congratulations of all his nobility after a great conquest, and admired that the very devil and the damned shall do. For though their malice and condition will not permit them to praise him, yet his inexpressible love in making such black insides so beautiful shall astonish even them. In this sense, the things under the earth shall bow down to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, a name which God gave him in the beginning. Quote, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Close quote. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. And upon his exaltation this was confirmed when he was made perfect. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9. And that is exalting. For at that time he became the author of eternal salvation, acquiring both the power of saving and the name conferred upon him. And they shall confess that he is Lord, Philippians chapter 2 verse 11, and that is to say that he acted like a Lord when he prevailed over all the opposition which those great sinners made against him. The whole trial of the saints and the sentence of their blessedness shall be finished before that of the damned, Matthew chapter 25, so that the whole scene of his love and the wonders of the work of faith being laid open might strike them with vast amazement.
and that this is the design of Christ to be glorified in his grace and power is made apparent by the apostles' prayer that the Thessalonians might be counted in the number of those in which Christ should be thus glorified. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11-12 through 12. And therefore, he prays that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. And that is, the grace he was so pleased and delighted to manifest, and which carries on the work of faith with power. Quote, that the name of Christ might be glorified, close quote might be glorified in them as well as in the rest of the saints, his saints. Ordinary conversion is an act of grace, not a decision. It's an act of grace. Barnabas interprets it as such when a great number believed. Acts chapter 11, verses 21 through 24. What an abundance of grace is expended in converting a company of extraordinary sinners. And it is the glory of a man to pass by an offense, Proverbs 19, verse 11, and that is to say, it is a manifestation of a property which is an honor to him to be known to have. If it is such an honor to simply pass by an offense, then the greater the offense is, and the more the offenses there are for him to pass by, then the corresponding glory must also be that much greater as well, because it is a manifestation of this quality in greater strength and vigor. Therefore, it must argue, the exceptional grace of God in remitting the many and great sins in men, as opposed to forgiving only a few lesser offenses. Number one, the fullness of his grace. By this he shows that there is more grace in him than there can be sin in us, or even in the entire world. He lets some sinners run mightily upon his score to demonstrate that though they are bankrupt, yet his grace is not. That though they have spent all their stock upon their swinish lusts, yet they have not drained his treasures any more than the sun is emptied of its strength by dissipating the foul vapors of the dunghill. And this was his design in giving the moral law, finis operis, the aim of the work. And that is, the event of the law was to increase the sin. But the finis operantius, the aim of the operator, was the means of glorifying his grace. Quote, Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Close quote. 
That's Romans chapter 5, verse 20. When the law of nature was out of print and so blurred that it could scarcely be read, God brings the moral law, the counterpart of the law of nature, in a new edition, that's E-D-I-T-I-O-N, into the world. And by doing this, sin had new aggravations, for its rebellion is cast against a clearer light, and swells and breaks over the mighty bank of the law laid in its way. And yet this was serviceable to the fullness of his grace, which had more abundant matter to work upon in so doing, and a larger field in which to sow its inexhaustible seed. It is overabounded, so that grace should rise in its tide higher than sin, bearing it down before it, just as the rolling tide of the sea rises higher than the streams of the river and beats them back with all their mud and filth. It was mercy in God to create us. It is abundant mercy to make any new creatures after they had forfeited their happiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And the text renders it according to his abundant mercy. But it was the overflowing grace of the Lord, or exceedingly abundant, beyond the fullness of grace, to make such deformed creatures new creatures. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. Number two, the freeness of his grace. No one can entertain the notion that Christ could be a debtor to sin unless it is in vengeance. Much less can he be considered a debtor to the worst of sinners. But if Christ were only to take those who possessed some moral and natural excellencies, well then, men might suspect that Christ was somehow or other, another, predisposed toward them, and that the gift of salvation was limited to those who possessed the endowments of nature and the good exercise and use of a man's own will. Yet when he makes no distinction between those of the least and those of the greatest demerit, showing love to the foulest monsters of sin, as well as the fairest of nature's children, he builds triumphant arches of his grace upon this rubbish and makes men and angels gaze with admiration upon these infinitely free compassions by taking souls full of disease and misery into his arms. And by this, it is made plain that the God and Lord of nature is no more bound to his servant regarding the gift of salvation when she carries it the most smoothly with him or when she rebels against him with the 
highest hand. The Lord Jesus Christ is at perfect liberty from any conditions, but those of his own choosing, namely faith. And that he can and will embrace the dirt and mud as well as the beauty and varnish of nature if both believe with the same precious faith. Therefore, in Scripture, it is frequently God's method to sum up the sinner's debts, along with all their aggravating factors, just before the offer of a pardon, to convince them of their inability of satisfying so large a score and also to manifest the freeness and vastness of his grace. Quote, But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offering, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. Close quote. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 22 through 24. When he had told them how dirtily they had dealt with him and would have made him a very slave to their own corrupt dispositions, and yet in the end, when they and any other rational creature could only expect fireballs of wrath to be flung in their faces, and that God would dip his pen in gall and write their mitimus to hell. Instead, he dips it in honey and crosses out the debt. Quote, I, even I, am he that blotteth out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Close quote. That's verse 25. Could there be anything of merit here when the criminal, instead of favor, could expect nothing but severity, there being nothing but demerit in him? It is so free that the mercy we abuse, the name that we have profaned, the name of which we have deserved unmitigated wrath. It opens its mouth with pleas for us. Quote, but I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Close quote. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 21. It was not for their sake. It was completely free. For he repeats their profaning of his name four times in the text. But what they had profaned, he would sanctify or glorify. How? By cleansing them from their filthiness. That's verse 25. His name mentions their demerits even as it pleads for them. So that grace may appear to be grace indeed, and may triumph in its own freeness. 
Our sins against him cannot deserve more than our sufferings for him. And even they are not worthy of the glory which shall be revealed. Romans chapter 8 verse 18. Number three, the extent of his grace. The mercy of God is called his riches and the exceeding riches of grace. Romans chapter 10 verse 12, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 and chapter 2 verse 7. Now, as there is no end to his holiness, which is his, his honor, and neither are there any limits set upon his power, and so also, as there is no end to his grace, which is his wealth, no end to his abundance, therefore the foulest and greatest sinners are the most fit for Christ to manifest the abundant riches of his grace upon. For it must by necessity argue a more vast estate to pay off great debts of many thousands of talents than to forgive a few mere shillings or a pence, or rather to pardon some smaller sins and otherwise moral men. If it were not for the turning and pardoning of mountainous sinners, we would not know so much of God's estate. We would not know how rich he is or what he is worth. He pardons iniquities for his name's sake. And who can spell out all the letters of his name or turn through all the pages in his book of mercy? Who shall say to his grace, as he does to the sea, quote, Hitherto shalt thou go, and no further, close quote. Job chapter 38, verse 11. As the heavens are of a vast extension, which, like a great circle, encompasses the earth, which lies in the middle like a tiny atom, that's A-T-O-M, in comparison to that vast body of air and ether, and so are our sins are compared to the vast extent of God's mercy. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 9. Men's sins are innumerable, yet even they are as ciphers when compared to the vast sums of grace which are expended every day. Their sins are finite, but his mercy is infinite. All the sins in the world put together cannot be of so large an extent as his mercy, because being every one of them is finite. And if all of them were laid together, they cannot amount to an infinite sum. The gospel is entitled, Goodwill to Men. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 14. That is, to all sorts of men. Those with iniquities, transgressions, and sins of all sorts and sizes. 
God has storehouses of mercy lying beside him. His treasury is never empty. He keeps mercy for thousands. Exodus chapter 34 verse 7. Keeps mercy for thousands in a state of readiness to dole it out upon a thousand million sins and millions of people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all that have lived before us have not used it up. And if God were to proclaim his name again, it is still the same. For his name and his essence are unchangeable. His grace is no more tied to one sin than it is to one person. He has mercy on whomever he chooses. And his grace can pardon whatever sins he, he desires to forgive. Therefore, he tells them, that he would multiply their pardons. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7. He will have mercy to suit every one of your sins. And a salve for every sore. That's medicine. For every sore. Though your sin has its heights and depths. Yet he will heap mercy upon mercy. Until he makes it to over top your sin. He will be as good at his merciful arithmetic as you have been at your sins, if you will sincerely repent and reform. Though you multiply your sins by the thousands, where repentance goes before, remission of sin follows without limitation. When Christ gives the one, he is sure to second it with the other. Though there may be ever so many aggravating circumstances, yet he will multiply his mercies as fast as you can list the sins you have committed. And on a side note, I can tell you that this is an absolute truth. 100% factual. He has a cleansing virtue and a pardoning grace for all iniquities and transgressions. Quote, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Close quote. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 8. It is repeated three times to show that his mercy is as large as their sin, though there was not a more sinful nation upon the earth than they were. His justifying and sanctifying grace are equally vast in their extent. For he both pardons and cleanses them. Well, why? Well, that it might be a name of joy and praise and an honor to him before all the nations of the earth. Uh, that's verse 9. 
It is so great that the self-righteous murmur at it, complaining that such swines should have been preferred before then, even as the older son was angry that his father lavished his kindness out upon the prodigal son more than upon himself. That's Luke chapter 15, verse 28. Number four, the compassion of his grace. And the formal nature of mercy is tenderness, and the natural effect of it is relief. The more miserable the object, the more compassionate human mercy is, and the more forward to assist. Now the mercy which is in man is a quality, but in God it is his nature. How would the infinite tenderness of his nature be revealed if there were no objects of it to draw forth? It would not be known to be mercy unless it was shed abroad, nor to be tender mercy unless it relieved great and oppressing miseries. For in man, mercy is a quality that cannot keep itself at home, stowed under lock and key in a man's own breast, and much less in God, in whom it is his nature. Now the greater the disease, the greater the revelation of the compassion which God has in such abundance. Even as his purpose in letting the devil pour out so many afflictions upon Job was to show his, uh, his pity and tender mercy in relieving him. <laughs> We've all heard of the patience of Job and have seen the aim of the Lord in it, that the Lord is full of pity and tender mercy. James chapter 5 verse 11. So also, he drives at the same end in permitting the devil to draw his elect, that's God's elect, towards so many sins. I'm going to read that again just so you all get and understand this. He drives at the same end in permitting, allowing the devil to draw away his own elect towards so many sins. And he is more tender in helping men under sin than under affliction, because the guilt of one sin is a greater misery than the burden of a thousand crosses. If forgiveness is a part of tenderness in man, then the same is also true in God, who is set as a pattern of the compassion we are to show toward others. Quote, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for, the, for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Close quote. It's Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. The lower a man is brought the more tender is that mercy which relieves him. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. Psalm 79, verse 8. To visit those who sit in darkness 
and the shadow of death and to pardon their sins this is called mercy and is described as tenderness through the tender mercy of our God whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us Luke chapter 1 verses 77 through 79 and thus it is indeed when he visits the most forlorn sinners. Number five, the sincerity and pleasure of his grace. Ordinary pardon proceeds from his delight in mercy. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression? of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. That's Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Therefore, the more of his grace that he lays out upon any one, the more excess of delight that he has in it, because it is a larger effect of that grace. If he were not sincere in it, he would never mention men's sins, which would scare them from him rather than allure them toward him. If he were not sincere, he would never change the heart of an enemy and show kindness to him who is engaged in his very act of enmity. For the first act of grace upon us is quite against our wills. Indeed, man is so far from being active in it that he is contrary to it. In primo actionis, that is the first action, it is thus with a man, though not in primo actu, the first act. For in the first act, of conversion man is willing though not in the first moment of that act but for God to bestow his grace upon us against our will and when he can expect no suitable recompense from us gives us the evidence of the purity of his affection I'm going to read this one again too to correct a lot of mistakes about God bestowing grace and whether we choose to do it or not. Okay? Sharnock is saying here, but for God to bestow his grace upon us against our wills, and when he can expect no suitable recompense from us, this is the evidence. It gives evidence of the purity of his affection. This is 100% fact. God's grace is given to us against our will. You can't, act, you can't ask for it when you're dead. Day by day, he endures the many contradictions of sinners against himself. And yet, he is resolved to have them and seizes upon them, though they struggle and fly in his face. 
provoking him to fling them off. And this is so much his delight that it is called by the very name of his glory. Quote, The glory of the Lord shall follow thee. Close quote. Isaiah chapter 58 verse 8. That is to say, the mercy of the Lord shall follow them at their very heels. And when they call, it will answer them. And when they cry, he will cry out, Here I am, like a watchful guardian servant. And in this way, he never lets a great sinner who is changed into a penitent wait long for the mercy though he sometimes lets them wait long for a sense of the mercy. This, too, is 100% factual. God gives us mercy, yet we sometimes don't catch it until after, after a little while. But the mercy is there. Okay? This mercy is never so delightful to him as when it is most glorious. And it is most glorious when it takes hold of the worst sinners. For such black spots which mercy wears upon its face makes it appear all the more beautiful. The Lord Jesus Christ does not care to stay where he does not have an opportunity to do great cures which are suitable to the vastness of his power. Mark chapter 6 verse 5. When he was in his own country, he could do no great work there, but only laid his hands upon a few sick people. He did not have a suitable employment for his glorious power of working miracles. And so also, when men come to Christ with a lighter guilt, he has but an under-opportunity given to him, and that with a kind of disadvantage to manifest the greatness of his charity. Though he has so much grace and mercy, yet he cannot show more than the nature and circumstances of the opportunity will bear. And so his pleasure does not swell as high as it otherwise would. For little and few sins are not so fit an object for a grace that would ride in triumph. Free grace is God's darling, which he loves to advance, and is never more advanced than when it beautifies the most misshapen souls. Now we come to the glory of his power. The scripture portrays conversion as a most wonderful work, comparing it to creation, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and so forth. Number one, conversion and the power of God in creation. Conversion, well, simply considered, is concluded by theologians to be a greater work than creation. For God puts forth more power morally in conversion than he did physically in creation. The world was created by a word. But many words and actions work 
together in conversion. The heavens are called the works of God's fingers, Psalm 8, verse 3. But the gospel, in the effects of it, is called the arm of the Lord, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Men do not put their arm into a task unless the work requires more strength than the fingers possess. It is, quote, the power of God to salvation, close quote, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And the faith it works is begun and fulfilled with power, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. God created the world out of nothing. Nothing could not objectively contribute to his design as matter does to a workman's intent. Yet, neither does it oppose him, because it is nothing. As soon as God spoke the word, this nothing brought forth from out of its barren womb the sun, moon, the stars, the earth, trees, the flowers, and all the other garnishments of nature. But sin is actively disobedient, disputing his commands, slighting his power, and fortifying itself against his entrance upon the heart, and not giving up an inch of ground without a struggle. There is not mere passive indisposition, but rather an, oct an active opposition. His creating power drew the world out of nothing, but his converting power frames the new creature out of something that is worse than nothing. In its natural state, there is nothing but darkness and confusion to the soul and in the soul. We do not have the least spark of divine light. No more than the chaos had when God, who commanded light to shine out of that darkness, shined in our hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This is what I was talking about when I said dead men. The walking dead. You're alive but spiritually dead. Okay? It's being said here again. To bring a principle of light into the heart and to set it up in spite of all the opposition that the devil and a man's own corruption makes, this itself is greater than the act of creation. As the power of the sun is more evident in scattering the thickest mists that triumph over the earth, masking the face of the heavens, than in melting the small clouds, which are composed of but a few vapors, well, so also, it must argue, a greater strength to root out the great sins that were twisted and ingrained into our very natures from conception, and had become as dear to us as our right eyes and right hands 
than those few sins that had hardly taken any deep root. Every man naturally possesses a hatred of God and opposes everything which would restore God to his rightful place. And being filled with a desire for independence since the fall, which is daily strengthened with new recruits, and loathe to surrender itself to the power and direction of another, it is a more difficult thing to tame uh, this unruly disposition in man's heart, and more difficult than to annihilate him and create him again, even as it is often easier for an artisan to create a new piece of work than to repair and patch up an old one that is out of frame. Number two, conversion and the power of God in the resurrection. Conversion is likened unto resurrection. He, quote, quickened us when we were dead, close quote. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. And the power that brings it about is the same power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. A mighty power that removed the stone from the grave when the Lord Jesus Christ lay within it and with all the sins of the world laid upon him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Well, so also, the greater the stone that is upon them, the greater God's power is in removing it. For if it is the power of God to simply regenerate nature and put a new law into the heart, qualifying the will with a new bias to comply with this law, and making those that could not endure any thoughts of grace, now unable to endure any thoughts of sin, well, then it surely displays a much greater power to raise a man from the death he has laid in for 30 or 40 years, rotten and putrid in his grave, his flesh. For if conversion in its own nature is creation and resurrection, this must be creation and resurrection with an emphasis. Look, the more malignant any disease is, and the more entrenched in the vital organs and complicated by other derangements, well, the greater is the power in curing it. For a disease is more easily checked at its first invasion than when it has infected the entire body and become chronic. Well, so also, it is more difficult to pull up a sin, or many sins, it is more difficult to pull up a sin that has spread its roots deeply and has withstood the shock of many blustering winds of threatening than that which is but a twig and newly planted. Number three, conversion as pulling 
or drawing. Well, we see here, drawing implies a strength. If conversion is a pulling, then more strength is required to draw one that is bound to a post by great cables than one who is only tied back by a few pack threads. One that has millions of weights upon him than one that has but a few pounds. Number four. It is the only miracle the Lord Jesus Christ has left standing in the world. And it declares him to be Christ more than anything else. I'm going to read that part again, because there are some people who keep believing in miracles, like you see on TVN and stuff. Okay, Sharnock and a few of us agree that it is the only miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ has left standing in the world, and it declares him to be Christ more than anything else. When John was sent to inquire of the Lord Jesus who he was, he returned no other account but a list of his miracles. And that which brings up the rear is the greatest. Quote, the poor are evangelized. Close quote. Luke chapter 7 verse 20. <coughs> Excuse me. The preaching of the gospel is not to be taken actively, but passively. They were wrought upon by the gospel and became an evangelized people who were transformed into the mold of it. Otherwise, it would bear no analogy to the other miracles. The deaf heard and the dead were raised. They had not only exhortations to hear, but the effects, that's E-F-F-E-C-T-S, but the effects were wrought upon them. And so these words import not only the preaching of the gospel to them, but the powerful operation of the gospel in them. To evangelize one dead soul is a greater work than to raise many thousands killed in a battle. It is a miracle of power to transform a ravenous wolf into a gentle lamb, a furious lion into a meek dove, a nasty cesspool into a clear fountain, a stinking weed into a fragrant rose, a toad or viper, into a man endued with rational faculties and moral endowments, and so to transform a filthy swine into a king and priest unto God. In conquests of this nature, all divine power appears glorious, and it requires some strength to polish a rough stone taken out of the quarry and to carve it into the statue of a great prince, but much more, <laughs> much more to make this statue a living man. God makes worse stones than these into children, not only for Abraham, but for himself, namely the Gentiles, 
who were accounted as stones by the Jews and are called stones in scripture for their worshiping of idols. An example there is Matthew chapter 3 verse 9. What power must there be in stopping the tide of the sea and making it suddenly recoil back? What vast power must there be in changing a black cloud into a glorious sun? God does this and more in conversion. He takes not only smooth pieces of the softest material, but the most rugged timber full of knots to plain and show both his strength and art upon. The glory of his wisdom. The work of grace in making a new creation is not only an act of God's power, but also of his wisdom. His wisdom is shown in contriving the platform of grace and bringing the Lord Jesus Christ upon the stage of it, and also in the particular, particular distributions of it. He acts according to counsel, and that infinite as well. Even the counsel of his own will, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. And the apostle, having discoursed before, of God's making known the mystery of his will in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, that's verse 9, and of the dispensation of this grace in bestowing an inheritance, quote, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Close quote. That's verse 11. He does not say God predestined us according to the counsel of his own will, but refers it to all he had previously said, namely, of his making known the mystery of Christ and their obtaining of an inheritance. Speaking before of the pardon of sin by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, According to the riches of God's grace, he says, quote, He hath abounded towards us in all wisdom. Close quote. That's verse 8. And as there was an abundance of grace set apart to be dealt out, and so also there was abundance of wisdom employed in the distribution of it. The restoring of God's image requires at least as much wisdom as the first creating of it, and the application of redemption, and the bestowing of pardon, and converting grace is as much an act of God's prudence as the contrivance of it was of his counsel. Grace, or gracious, or a gracious man in respect of his grace, Grace is called God's workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This implies the working of his art as well as his strength, and the operation of his mind as well as his hand. His poem, 
not merely a work of omnipotence, but something which contains his intellectual spark. A new creature is a curious piece of divine art, fashioned by God's wisdom to set forth the praise of its framer. Well, even as a poem is published to show the reason, fancy, wit, and talents of its composer. It is the great skill of an artisan to take a mixture of sand and ash and by his breath to blow up a clear and disaphonous body of glass, crafting a vessel from it for various uses. It is not merely his breath that does it, for other men have breath as well, but it is breath managed by art. And is it not a marvelous skill in God to suddenly make a miry soul so pure and crystalline, to endue an irrational creature with a divine nature, and by a powerful word to frame so beautiful a model as a new creature is? The more intricate and naughty, that's K-N-O-T-T-Y, the more intricate and naughty any business is, the more eminent is a man's ability in accomplishing it. The more desperate the wound is, the more honorable the surgeon's ability in effecting the cure. Christ's healing of a soul that has come to the last gasp and is given over by all as lost shows more art than setting an ordinary sinner aright. Our apostle takes notice of the wisdom of God in his own conversion here. For when he relates the history of it, he breaks out into a hallelujah and sends up a volley of praises to God for the grace he has obtained. And in that doxology, he puts an emphasis on the wisdom of God. Quote, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Close quote. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Only wise God. He does not add any other attribute. And this wisdom appears, number one, in the subjects that he chooses. Now we will go no further than the example in our text. Our apostle seems to be a man full of heat and zeal, and the church has already felt the smart from his activity, in so much as they were afraid to come to him after his conversion, or to admit him into their company imagining that his fury was not changed, but rather disguised, and that the open persecutor had turned himself into a pretender. That's Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Well, no one can better express what a lion he was than he himself. Quote, Many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I pushed them often in every synagogue, and compelled them 
to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, persecuted them even unto strange cities, close quote. Acts chapter 26, verses 10 through 11. He also seems to have been a man of high and ambitious spirit. While this persecuting was probably so vigorous that it ingratiated him to the chief priests and served as a means to step up into preferment. In other words, getting a promotion. For he was endued with talents and learning and did not lack the zeal and industry for the attainment of it. He left no stone unturned. <laughs> By the temptation which he had, he seems to have been of a proud spirit, quote, lest I should be exalted above measure, close quote. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He says it twice in that verse, implying that his natural disposition led him to be lifted up by any excellence that he possessed. And usually, God aims his artillery in such a way as to beat down those sins to which we are predisposed. He was a man of a very honest mind, and was forward in following every point his conscience directed him to. For what he did against the Lord Jesus Christ, he did according to the dictates of his conscience, as it was then informed. Quote, I verily thought with myself, in other words, in my conscience, that I ought, close quote, Acts chapter 26, verse 9. Not that I might, but rather that I ought. It was his duty, and his error commanded with the same power that truth did when it came to reign within him. In other words, the accident there on the road to Damascus, being blinded, thrown from his horse, the whole lot. Now it reveals the wisdom of God to lay hold of a man with this temperament, one who was compelled to honestly obey the dictates of a rightly informed conscience, as well as those of an erroneous one. The zeal to execute them, and strength of resolve, to preserve his activity from being blunted by any opposition, in other words, from being stopped, with talents and prudence in the management of all these things. Well, I say, to turn these affections and excellencies so that they now run in a heavenly channel, and to guide this natural passion and heat into the service and advancement of the self-same interest, which he had previously endeavored to destroy, and for the propagation of the gospel, which he had previously persecuted, well, this is an accomplishment of wonderful wisdom, even as it is a writer's skill to direct the metal of a headstrong horse for his own use in carrying him on a long journey. Number two. This wisdom appears in the timing of it. As man's wisdom consists, as well in timing his actions, as contriving the models of them, well, so does God's. He lays hold 
of the most fit opportunities for bringing his wonderful providences upon the stage. He has his set time for delivering his church from her enemies. Psalm 102 verse 13. And he also has his set time for delivering each and every soul that he intends to make a member of his church from the devil. He waits for the most fit season to manifest his grace. Quote, Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Close quote. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 a. Well, why? Quote, because the Lord is a God of judgment. That's verse 18b. In other words, a God of wisdom. Therefore, he will time things to their best advantage, both for his glory and for the sinner's good. The timing of his grace in the conversion of Paul was excellent. Letter A. It was excellent in respect of himself. There could not be a more fit time to glorify his grace than when Paul had almost reached the end of his chain, almost sinning against the Holy Spirit. For if he had just a little more light, if he had had just a little more light and had done out of malice that which he did out of ignorance, he would have been lost forever. Yet, he obtained mercy. Well, why? Well, because he did it in ignorance. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. And as I said before, he followed the dictates of his conscience. For if he had had knowledge suitable to his fury, it would have been the unpardonable sin. And Christ permitted him to run to the brink of of hell before he laid hold upon him. And I'm sure there's some of you listening, and I can attest to this myself. That's a, pretty much how it happens. Christ permits us to run to the brink of hell before he lays hold on us. Let her be in respect of others. Well, he was converted at such a time when he went as full of madness as a toad is of its poison, spitting it out against the poor Christians at Damascus. Armed with all the power and credential letters the high priest could give him. And without question, he promised himself much from his diligence. And yet, when he was almost at his journey's end, ready to execute his commission, quote, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, close quote, Acts chapter 9, verse 3, about a half mile from the city, as uh, Galilimus uh, Tyrus thinks, Tyrius thinks, about a half mile from the city, at this very time, the Lord Jesus Christ grapples with him, overcoming all his mad principles and securing Paul from hell and Christ's disciples from their fears of him. And behold, the nature of this lion has changed, just as he was going to fall upon his prey. It was like he did it in mid-leap. Paul the lion had already jumped, was on the downward side, and the Lord Jesus Christ snatched it. 
right there as he was coming down. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ could have converted Paul sooner. He could have converted him when he heard of Christ's miracles. And it's probable that Paul was a resident of Jerusalem at the time of Christ's preaching in Judea, for he was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a doctor of the law and was one of the council. That's Acts chapter 22, verse 3, and chapter 5, verse 34. Well, he could have also converted him when he heard Stephen making his elegant and convincing oration in his own defense. It's Acts chapter 7. Or even when he saw Stephen's courage and patience and charity in his suffering, which might have startled such a moral man as Paul was and caused him to reflect upon all these events. But Christ omits the doing of it at all these opportunities and permits him to kick against the pricks of miracles, admonitions, and the arguments of Stephen and others, all the while having his eye upon him in a special manner. He is named when no one else is. Quote, And the witnesses laid their clothes at a young man's feet named Saul. Close quote. Acts chapter 7 verse 58. And also, Saul was consenting to his death. That's Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Was there anyone else that had a hand in it? Well, the Spirit of God takes special notice of Saul here. He runs in God's mind, yet God would not stop his fury. That is Paul's fury. Quote, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Close quote. Acts chapter 8 verse 3. Well, did anyone else show as much zeal and cruelty as Saul? Surely, he must have had someone who helped him. And yet, we hear of no one but Saul named. Quote, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Close quote. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. And all this is as if to say, Yet he shall not do so for much longer, for I shall have a fit time to meet with him presently. And it was not an appropriate time when the devil hoped to rout the Christians through him. And the high priests assured themselves of success through this man's passionate zeal. The church travailing in the throes of fear regarding him. But the Lord Jesus Christ sent the devil away, sulking for the loss of of such an active instrument. He frustrated all the expectations of the high priests and calmed all the stormy fears of his disciples. For Christ sets him to preaching at Damascus first, in the very synagogues which were to assist him in his cruel design. Quote, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God, and increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Close quote. Acts chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. 
Well, did not Christ show himself to be a God of judgment here? He sat watching in heaven for the time of greatest advantage in turning Paul. His wisdom accomplishes many things at once, killing many birds with one stone. In one blow, he struck dead Paul's sin, his people's fears, the high priest's expectations, and the devil's hopes. He triumphs over his enemies, secures his friends, saves Paul's soul, and promotes his interest through him, all the while disappointing the devil's expectations and hell of the one she longed for. Number three. Now this wisdom appears in keeping up the credit of Christ's death. The great excellence with which Christ's sacrifice transcends the sacrifices under the law is that it makes perfect atonement for all sins. First, it satisfies God, and then it calms the conscience. Well, both things which the sacrifices, that is the Old Testament Levitical ceremonial sacrifices, that they could not do. For a consciousness of sin remained even after their sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The tenor of the covenant of grace which God makes with his people is established upon this sacrifice. Quote, This is the covenant I will make with them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Close quote. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. This also, by the way, is the verse that put an end to the Levitical sacrifices. The wave offerings, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings. All done away with. Gone. This covenant extends not only to little sins, for there is no limitation. Great sins are also included. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied for great sins, or else, if they would ever be pardoned, there must be another sacrifice, either of himself or some other which the Apostle, upon the account of this covenant, asserts there need not be, because this sacrifice was complete, and since there is no remembrance of sin. And as the covenant implied the completeness of Christ's satisfaction, so the continual fulfillment or application of the tenor of the covenant implies the perpetual favor and force of this sacrifice. And indeed, when God delivered him up, he intended it for the greatest sins. He was delivered for our offenses. Romans chapter 4 verse 25. This does not signify any mere stumbling, but falling. Not a minor transgression, but a major one. 
Now, if Christ's death is not satisfactory for the payment of great debts, then Christ must be too weak to perform what God intended by him. And so, infinite wisdom was frustrated out of its intention, something which cannot nor ought to be even imagined. Now therefore, God takes the greatest sinners to show, letter A, the value of his sacrifice. If God only entertained men of a lighter guilt, then Christ's death would be suspected of being too low a ransom for more monstrous enormities, and that his treasure was sufficient for the satisfaction of smaller debts, but lacked sufficient merit for the discharging of greater debts, an idea which is not suitably commensurate to the grandeur of Christ or the infinite nature of the mercy God proclaims in his word. But the conversion of gigantic sinners does credit to the atonement which Christ made, and is a great affirmation of its infinite value, and its equivalence to God's demands, for it bears some analogy to the resurrection of Christ, which was God's general acquittance to Christ, evidencing the sufficiency of his payment. And the justification of every sinner is a branch of that acquittance, given to Christ at his resurrection. For he was raised again for our justification. And that's Romans chapter 4, verse 25. And it was also a particular acquaintance to Christ for every soul that he had the charge of from his Father. All the power that works in the first creation of grace, or the progress of regeneration, bears some proportion to the acquitting and approving power manifested in Christ's resurrection. Quote, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Close quote. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 20. In verses 17 through 18, the apostle prays for the carrying on of the work of grace and regeneration that had begun in them, so that they might more clearly understand the power which Christ had wrought in them, namely the approving power of what Christ has done, which he exerts daily in conversion and in the effects of it. For by raising any soul from its death in sin, God gives evidence to the particular value of Christ's blood for that soul, even as he had evidenced the general fullness of that satisfaction in raising Christ from the dead. And he will continue to do this unto the end of the world. For he, quote, raised us up together with Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show us kindness through Christ Jesus. Close quote. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. All his grace in all the ages, even to the end of the world, shall run through this channel, putting credit 
and honor upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the greater the sin that is pardoned, and the greater the sinner is that is converted, the more it shows the sufficiency of the price Christ paid. Letter B. The virtue of his sacrifice. He is a priest forever. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 17. And therefore, the virtue, as well as the value, of his sacrifice remains forever. He has obtained an eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. And that is to say, a redemption of an eternal efficacy. As long as men receive any venom from the fiery serpent, they may be healed by the antitype of the brazen one. And that's in reference to Numbers chapter 21, verses 7 through 9. Though it had been many years since he was lifted up. And those who were stung all over, as well as those who were bitten only once, may, by a believing looking upon him, draw virtue from him, as widespread as their sin. Now the new conversion of men, of extraordinary guilt, proclaims to the world that the fountain of his blood is inexhaustible that the virtue of it is not spent or drained, though so much has been drawn from it for upwards of 5,000 years for the cleansing of sins past before his coming and sins since his death. This evidences that his priesthood is now of as much efficacy as his sufferings on earth were valuable, and that his merit is as much in virtue above our iniquity as his person is in excellence above our nothingness. He can wash the tawny American as well as the moral heathen. He can make the black Ethiopian as white as the most virtuous philosopher. God sometimes fastens upon the worst of men in order to adorn the cross of Christ, and he makes them eminent testimonies of the power of Christ's death. Quote, he made his grave with the wicked. Close quote. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. God shall make man who is wallowing in sinful pleasures, tied to the blandishments and prophets of the world. God shall make man to come to Christ and comply with him in order that he might be a standing testimony for all the ages to the virtue of his sufferings. And finally, number four, for the fruitfulness of this grace in the converts themselves. The most rugged souls prove most eminent in grace upon their conversion, even as the most brilliant diamonds in India 
which are naturally more rough, are most bright and sparkling when cut and smoothed. And that's the end.